If you don't know me, my name's Paul. Um, I, I don't work for the church. I work fitting shutters in the week. Um, when, I was a, when I was a little boy, I used to really enjoy stories and books and films where there was fighting involved. Look at these guys. Whoa. Um, just loved all that kind of thing. You know, in ancient Japan, the, the ninjas. Look at this guy. Like the, the, the kind of shadow warriors that would creep out of the darkness and, and just get you when you weren't expecting it. I used to creep around when I was a boy. I used to tie a t-shirt around my head. So just my eyes were showing like a ninja. And I'd sneak around pretending to be a ninja. I loved all that stuff. The, the 300 Spartans at Thermopylae. Do you know that story where they take on the Persian armies? I loved all of that. Loved the fight scenes, the battles. And um, I grew up in Brazil. I was born and raised in Brazil. And the area we lived in, there was quite a lot of crime. I mean, the guy in the picture here, he wouldn't do you any harm. He's herding his cattle. But there were people that could turn up at your house at night armed and could rob you. Um, and if you were driving at night especially, you could be held up at gunpoint and people would take your vehicle off, you take your money. Um, so it was a dangerous environment. And because of that, I've chatted to a number of guys in the church um, I don't know about you, but I have this thing in my mind where I might be in a particular situation. I'm always imagining, what would I do in this situation if someone burst through the door with a gun? Where would I run? How would I, how would I tackle them? Some of you are looking at me like I'm mental. What, what is he on about? Um, I know there are some of you out there. Does anyone else have that kind of, yeah, there we go, a few of you, that kind of mentality, what would I do in this situation? I was at home the other night, and I thought I heard someone come through the door, and I had all the lights out, and I was just ready. Um, what, what a weird guy. What have I come to? Um, so when I was a kid, my favorite, my mom and dad used to get me to read the Bible, and my favorite bits in the Bible were the bits with action, with fighting, the book of Judges, the book of Kings, the story of David, the warrior king. Um, then when I was 12, I came to boarding school in this country from Brazil, and uh, there were some big lads at boarding school, and some of them could be bullies. And uh, some of the congregation are going to be shocked to find out this evening that um, getting into fights was quite a regular part of my life as a teenager. <gasps> um, but I always understood that Jesus was the one that I should listen to and obey, and that he knows what's best, and that he tells his followers not to be violent, to love our enemies. But I wondered as a kid, what does that look like? What do I do with this instinct inside of me to fight bullies? to defend my family? Is that a bad instinct I need to get rid of? Is a Christian really a weak person, a coward, not the kind of person you'd turn to in a crisis? Um, what I'm doing now, this is kind of like the kids' talk from this morning, but I thought it'd be helpful to, to do it in two parts. Um, every time I speak, I've been speaking through the book of Genesis, and every time I speak, I speak through the next chapter. So the last time I spoke, some of you guys were here, it was um, Genesis chapter 13. It's following the story of Abraham, who's going to become Abraham. And him and his nephew Lot, they're nomadic herdsmen, and they're traveling through the land. And Abraham's got herdsmen who look after his flocks, and Lot's got herdsmen who look after his flocks. And they kind of start arguing because there's too many flocks, too many of them in one place. Uh, and so quarreling comes up between them. So Abraham basically says to Lot, let's not have this argument between us. You're my nephew. Look at the land around you. You can have any bit of it that you want. You choose. You go there, and I'll go somewhere else so we don't have this quarreling between us. So Lot looks, and he sees this really nice piece of land. And he says, I'll have that bit then. And he goes and, and takes it. And so Lot goes and lives, and he pitches his tents near Sodom. 
So that's where chapter 13 ends. And chapter 14, which we're going to be looking at tonight, is one of those chapters that, as a little boy, I would have found exciting. It's got a fair bit of action in it. Um, So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to read the story to you, and I'm going to fill in some bits. There's a lot of names and things, especially at the beginning. So I'm just going to fill in some bits to kind of give a bit of of a clearer understanding of what's going on. And at the end, we've got eight questions to test um, test how well you've been paying attention. So here we go. I don't think we'll do sweets tonight. You can, you can score yourself. If you want sweets, you can come and ask me at the end. If you get eight out of eight, you can come ask me for sweets at the end. So here we go. This is Genesis chapter 14. It begins like this. At the time when Amraphel was king of Shinar, Arioch king of Elisar, Kedalama king of Elam, and Tidal king of Goyim. So there's a lot of names. These are four kings. So you've got these four kings, and you've got to think of them as like the big boss kings. They're the ones that are in charge. They're the four kings. So you've got their names and where they're from. And now there's going to be a second list of kings. These kings went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admar, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. So you've got these four powerful kings, and they're going to war with five other kings. That's kind of the intro. All these latter kings, so that's the last five, joined forces in the Valley of Sidim, that is the Dead Sea Valley, that's the picture you can see on there, that's the Dead Sea Valley. For 12 years, they had been subject to Kedalama, he was one of the four kings. But in the 13th year, they rebelled. So these five kings had served the other four kings as subjects for 12 years, and in the 13th year, they said, right, we're not serving you anymore, we're not going to pay you tax anymore, we're going to rebel. So what happens? In the 14th year, Kedalama, he's like the big chief king, and the kings allied with him went out. And so these people they're going to defeat now, they're basically traveling south from the north country, and they're defeating all kinds of peoples before they get to those five kings. So the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Raphaites. It's like an eye test. The Rephites in Ashtoreth Karnaim, the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shaveh Kiriathaim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, near the desert. So they're traveling down, and these four kings' big army, they're defeating everyone in their way. Then they turned back and went to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites, who were living in Hazizon Tamar. All of this is taking place in kind of what we'd now call modern-day Israel. And now we get to those five kings. So the four kings have made their way south. They've defeated everybody, and now they come to the five kings. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admar, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim. So in that, that valley of the Dead Sea. Imagine those five kings and their army, and they're now facing the big conquering army of the four kings. Right, we're not serving you anymore. Here's our army against Kedalama, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. I enjoyed that picture, that horse. Now, the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits. Now, tar pits, just a quick bit of information. Tar pits, that's um, another word for it, is bitumen. It's basically like crude oil. So there's big crude oil deposits under the ground. It's where it's come out into pits. So imagine what crude oil's like, or tar, these pits of kind of viscous black liquid. And what happened is the five kings have faced the four kings. There's not even a mention of the battle. The four kings have clearly just beaten them easily. 
And this detail is actually quite horrible. Now, the Valley of Sidim was full of tar pits. And when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them and the rest fled to the hills. So imagine these soldiers running from the battlefield. They've been beaten, and some of them, they're running so fast, they're falling into these pits of tar, and the ones that get away run to the hills. So it's total defeat. The four kings have won. They've beaten everyone. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and their food, and they went away. So they've looted. They've defeated them. The soldiers have run away, and they've looted the city. Then this is the key detail. They also carried off Abraham's nephew Lot, and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. So Abraham's nephew's Lot's also been captured, and he's, right, you're coming with us. He's taken away as a slave. And then you get this part of the story. So someone who's escaped the battle, a man who'd escaped, came and reported this to Abraham the Hebrew. Interesting little thing there. That's the first use of the word Hebrew in the Bible. Um, the reason Abraham's called Abraham the Hebrew is probably that this piece of history is borrowed in the Bible from a neighboring country's own history. And so they're describing Abraham as someone else, Abraham the Hebrew. Hebrew probably means like an immigrant who's traveled from over the river. That's what they think it means. So this guy, Abraham, this immigrant that's come into the land, someone's gone and told him, look, they've captured your nephew. So what happens then? Now, Abraham was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorites. So Mamre, the Amorites, a person, and he's a brother of Eschol and Anna, all of whom were allied with Abraham. So Abraham's allied with these three brothers. When Abraham heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. I don't know how you imagine the person of Abraham in the Bible. I'd never really thought of him like this. He's actually the, a bit of a tribal leader. So these 318 guys are, are boys, lads, that have been born to the families that are in Abraham's household. And they've grown up, and they're probably herdsmen, so they're used to traveling. And they're also used to looking after livestock. But as well as that, you'd have raiding parties that would try and nick livestock. So they'd be pretty handy in a fight as well. So they were ready to defend their livestock. So 318 trained men born in Abraham's household. And they chased this army. And then it gets exciting. During the night, Abram, so you imagine these 318 guys running through the night, chasing down, and there's this, they're going after this vast army of the four kings. And that army, this is how I imagine it, that army of the four kings has beaten everyone in the area. They're relaxed, they've looted, they've got slaves, they've got food, and they're heading home in victory, and they're heading home, and then these 318 guys come at them out of the night. And you picture the scene. They divided his men to attack them, and he routed them. Routed means completely defeated. And then he pursued them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. In other words, he jumps them in the night, and then this army just runs, and he chases them. It's thorough. Get out of the land. He recovered all the goods, and he brought back his relative lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. And then Abraham heads back home. After Abraham returned from defeating Kedalama and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh. That is the king's valley. So the king of Sodom that got defeated, he comes out to meet Abraham. And he says, oh, no, not yet. Now there's an interesting bit. So now somebody mysterious enters the story. We don't know a huge amount about him, but this guy Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. 
and praise be to God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people. In other words, you've won this battle. You're the hero here. Give me my people back, but you can keep all the stuff. Keep the goods for yourself. And Abram's reply is interesting. Abram said to the king of Sodom, with raised hand, I've sworn to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I'll accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you'll never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, those three brothers, to Aner, Eskol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. So that's the end of chapter 14. Uh, now you've got eight questions. See how well you do out of eight. Question number one, while it's fresh in your mind, it's probably the one you've been dreading. Can you name any of the kings? No. no. <laughs> Aliok, here's, here's, here's the answer. So you've got the four kings, Amraphel, who's king of Shinar, Ariok, well done, Phil, Elisar, Kedalama, and Tidal, and then there's the five kings, and also Melchizedek, he's described as the king of Salem as well. So there are 10 kings in the story. There you go, you give yourself a point if you've got one of them. Question number two, how many years were the five kings subject to the four kings? 12, well done. Question number three, when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, what did some of the men fall into? Tar or bitumen, or crude oil as we call it now. Question number four, what happened to Lot? Yeah, he got carried off, didn't he? Kidnapped. Question number five, how many brothers were allied to Abraham? Three. Can you name any of them for a bonus? Amre, well done. Mamre. The Amorite, brother of Eskol and Aner. There we go. Question number six. How many trained men did Abraham have? You guys are good. Sharp. Sharper than this morning. Question number seven. After the battle, what did Melchizedek bring to Abraham? Bread and wine. That's right. And final question. What did Abraham give to Melchizedek? A tenth of everything. Yeah, well done. If you know me fairly well, you know that something I really enjoy doing is I, I enjoy reading history and I enjoy listening to history. I listen to quite a lot of history on podcasts. And I was listening to a podcast the other day, and they were talking about these two particular towns in Italy. And these two towns, the soil around the towns is very fertile, so it's very good for agriculture. So, so people became very wealthy there. It was also a good tourist destination. You could go there and uh, by the sea, very beautiful. Uh, and the soil, I'm not a specialist in material science, but the soil around that town was very good for making concrete and cement. And it meant that a lot of the architectural styles that we see in Europe and the Middle East now um, were pioneered in these towns because the soil was so good for cement. So things like the, um, the domes on Islamic architecture, that kind of architecture was pioneered in these two towns. Um, and the year was 79 AD, so about 80 years after the birth of Jesus. Some of you already got knowing looks on your faces. Um, and so these two towns, very wealthy, and for a number of months in those two towns, things didn't seem quite right. There were some odd goings-on, odd noises. Um, the, the water supplies that came from the mountain nearby 
started to dry up, and no one could quite work out what was going on. And then in the year 79 AD, suddenly something happened that changed people's lives forever. This is a quote from Tom Holland, who's a historian. It was on the podcast I was listening to. So there's been these worrying signs. He says this, just before I say that, the name of the two towns, you might have heard of them, they're Pompeii and Herculaneum. And the mountain that's nearby is Vesuvius, Mount Vesuvius, that nowadays we would call a volcano. Tom Holland says this, despite these very worrying portents, portents like a sign, life carries on. And we can tell this from the archaeology. We know that donkeys are milling bread, that wine is being made, that people are conducting their business. And then suddenly everything changes. Everything changes utterly. And as far as Pompeii and Herculaneum are concerned, forever. So what happens is the sky suddenly goes completely black and it starts to rain rock. For hours and hours, just rock is falling from the sky. Um, and then a few hours later, those of you that know the story will know the volcano completely erupts and the two cities are destroyed. Where am I going with this? There's something that repeats itself in history again and again and again. It's a very common thing that comes up in history, and that is people living at ease in a comfortable place, having a sudden crisis that changes their life dramatically. Whether that's an individual, or a family, or a group of people, or a whole nation, history is full of that happening. People living comfortably, everything's fine, and then suddenly, boom, something happens that changes their life dramatically. And in the chapter we just read, that's exactly what happens to Lot. Lot picks out a really nice place to live, looks like a really nice bit of land, I'm going to live there, things are going to be okay for me. And then these four kings come in with their army, boom, he gets carried off, his life changes dramatically. It's a bit of a lesson there. Maybe your dream home that you've always dreamed about might end up actually being a nightmare. And then the camera shifts to Abram, and Abram gets told about what's happened to his nephew Lot, and he gets up and he does something about it. And as I was preparing to speak on this chapter, there was one thought that kept coming back in my head, which was this. What is it about Abram that makes him so useful in a crisis? And you might be sat here thinking tonight, how is any of this relevant to us? How likely is it that any of these things are going to happen to someone we know? How many tar pits or volcanoes are there in Sutton? And maybe you're right. Maybe Abraham's skill set was relevant for the ancient world, but nowadays, you know, modern world's moved on. Those skills aren't really relevant anymore. I wonder, can anyone remember who spoke here three weeks ago on the 4th of February? Was anyone here three weeks ago? Anyone remember? Who said Open Doors? Yeah, well done. It was, uh, it was Sam Miller from Open Doors and Suleiman. And they were telling us about how today Christians all over the world are being abducted and killed and mistreated for the name of Jesus. Today, that's happening today. And as I, as I was listening to them speaking, I was thinking about this passage. And I was thinking to myself, if I consider... As a Christian, if I consider other Christians to be my family, then these things that these guys are saying that are happening to Christians around the world today, it's actually quite similar. Christians are being abducted today. It's actually quite similar to what's happened with Abraham and Lot in this story. And I thought to myself, can I just sit here and hear what these guys are saying and then go home and do nothing about it? 
And I thought to myself, I can't do that. I think that would be an irresponsible... If I really believe that Christians are my family, then I can't walk away from an evening like that and do nothing. That would be irresponsible. So that was a challenge to myself. That's not who I want to be. And moving away from open doors, just thinking about our day-to-day lives here, it's not just persecution that's a threat to our family. We have other enemies too. When I use the word enemies, I don't mean physical people. I mean things that come and create crises in people's lives and destroy lives. Think about things like loneliness in our town today. Things like sudden financial crises, sudden illness, lack of food and housing, families being broken apart, displacement of people, destructive habits, addictions. These things are happening in our town this evening. And there are crises happening to people. There are Mount Vesuvius erupting for people in their personal lives today. And I'm not saying all of this to try and create a sense of fear or or make us feel scared. Us being scared doesn't help anyone. What I'm trying to do is, from the off, is to point out that actually Abraham and Lot's situation isn't that far removed from the things that people are experiencing today. People today have sudden crises that change their lives dramatically. We don't know as a community, as we look around us, we don't know what next week will bring for us. We don't know what Mount Vesuvius will erupt in someone's life. And as I was preparing, I thought to myself, I want to be like Abraham, the sort of person who's useful in a crisis. So what does that look like? I've called this talk Genesis 14. I forgot to flick that slide over. That's open doors. Genesis 14, being useful in a crisis. That's what I've called this talk. And there are just five things that I think we see in the story of Abraham that make him useful when a crisis happens, that make him useful. And if we're honest with ourselves, I'm like this. By the time you sit down, I don't know if you've eaten already. I'm going to eat after. By the time you sit down to eat, you're not going to remember 95% of what I've said, if you're anything like me, unless you've got an incredibly retentive memory. By the time you sit down for dinner, a lot of that's going to go. So there are going to be five things. My suggestion is try and take one of them and put it into practice this week. Because I think the combined effect of everybody taking one thing and putting it into practice, that's useful. Don't try and remember all of it, unless you've got one of those brains, in which case, do your thing. So we're going to go through those five things. Before we do that, let's pray. Lord Jesus, like we sang, you are the king above all other kings, and we're here because we want to honor you and worship you. I pray, would you speak to us through your word, the Bible, this evening? In Jesus' name, amen. So, straight into it. Thing number one, Abraham is with a fairly small group of guys. He's up against an experienced, battle-hardened, powerful army, the army of those four kings. And it's his care and his love for Lot, his nephew, that means he's ready to risk his own life to save him. I was thinking about this. It hadn't struck me until after the service this morning. My nephew, Zion, a lot of you know him, he's a little lad. I love that lad so much. If something were to happen to him, there's no way, there's nothing that would get in my way. If, If someone had come and taken Zion somewhere and meaning to do him harm, there's nothing that would stop me going after him. 
I love that kid. I don't want anything to happen to him. I'd never made that connection. This, for Abraham, that was the relationship. It was his nephew. And so Abraham, what he shows is he shows courage and he shows love. Billy Graham said, courage is contagious. When a brave person takes a stand, the spines of others are often stiffened. So Abraham shows courage and he puts the other man first. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. I think that's at the heart of, right at the beginning, why do you help in a crisis? It's this, it's the heart. It's because you love someone. Not to be a hero, not to be noticed. And so the question for me and for all of us is, if someone in our community has a crisis tomorrow, how far would I go to help them? So that's number one. Number two, if we think about it logically, Abraham's an older man at this point. Him chasing down that army, however much he loves Lot, however much courage he has, him chasing down that army by himself would have been pretty useless. They would have laughed at him. He bursts in out of the night. What are you going to do, mate? But we see in verse 13, Abraham was living near the great trees of Mamre. He's got these three brothers. What Abraham's done is he's made friends and allies with the people that are living near him people he knew he could count on in a crisis, these three brothers. And not only that, but he's got these 318 lads that have grown up in his household, the trained men in his house. Abraham had allies. So a question for all of us is, who are those people in your life? Who are the people that you can turn to if there's a crisis? Maybe tonight's the night to start thinking about who are your allies. Maybe you need to make some allies. Maybe you need to reinforce those relationships. Is there somebody who that's for you there, you know that you could turn to them in a crisis? Maybe invite them around for dinner this week or take them out for a drink and say, look, I want you to know that if something happens to you, here's my number. I want you to call me and I want you to know that you can count on me. And could I do the same for you? There are people in this town that I know if something happened to me tomorrow, I could call them and they would drop everything and they would be there for me. Who's that for you? Let's be the kind of people that are good allies. And you might be here thinking, well, I feel kind of useless. I don't know how much I could bring. We'll talk about that in a minute. But let's be the kind of people that if someone asks us to pray, they know that we'll pray for them. And if you're not sure, if you're here this evening, you look around, I don't know anyone here. I don't know who my allies are. After the service, talk to someone, get to know them. Say, is there anything that I can do for you? Take the first step. And then thinking about those lads that were born in Abraham's household, those 318 guys. They were the ones that helped him get the job done. As a community, here's a question. Those of us that are parents, especially, I'm not, those of us that are parents, I'm not a parent. Don't worry, there's nothing happened. Um, <laughs> I don't know why I said us. Um, those of you that are parents and those of us that are examples to younger people, it says this in Proverbs, start children off in the way they should go and even when they're old, they will not turn from it. The question is, are we training our young people in being brave and self-sacrificing and useful? So that's thing number two. Number three, Lot, when Abraham gets the news from this guy that's escaped the battle, Lot is at that moment literally being carried away. He's being carried away to these king's city as a slave. Abraham doesn't say, well, thank you, for your call is important to us. 
please come back to us in three to four working days. You know, I've got, I've got all the flocks out. We're a bit busy this week. It's not really going to work to rescue this. Sorry, mate. You know, maybe next week I'll come, and, I'll come and see what I can do for you. No, tomorrow was no good. Abraham is ready to act now. It says this in Proverbs as well. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, still the American spelling of neighbor. I forgot to change that from this morning. Sorry. Do not say to your neighbor, come back tomorrow and I'll give it to you when you already have it with you. In other words, if there's somebody who needs your help and you can help them now, do it now. So the question for us is, is there anyone I'm keeping waiting who needs me now? Would I be ready to drop everything if there was a crisis? Is there anything in my life that I need to put in place so that I know if there's a crisis in someone else's life, I'll be as free as possible to help them? Here's a really practical one. You might not be at all interested in doing this, but if you want a really practical, solid thing that you can do tonight, think about this. Are my finances set up and ready to help in a crisis? Here's something you can do. You can, if you do online banking, you can do it there. Set up a bank account or a savings account and put money in it and tell yourself that money is not for my use. That money is set aside for when someone in my community has a crisis. It will be ready and there, ready to use. Does that make sense? Set aside some money and, and put money in it each month if you can. Have it as your, your rescuing lot fund. So that's number three, ready to act now. Number four, Abraham's allies, they don't just respond quickly. They're not just brave. They're actually incredibly skilled and fit and thorough. I just The little boy in me was, was really excited by that mental image of these guys. They're herdsmen. They're hard guys. They're useful in a fight. And imagine them just arriving at that camp at night and breaking into groups quietly and surrounding. And I imagine those, that big army, they've defeated everyone, they're relaxed, they're at ease, and suddenly out of the darkness, these nomadic herdsmen come. Whoa, what's that? They're skilled and they're thorough. So the question is, what skills do I need to sharpen up to be useful to my community? Jesus is really clear that as Christians, we no longer use violence. That's not the game we're in anymore. Violence isn't for us anymore. We love our enemies. But what skills do I need to use to be useful to my community? So the herdsmen, part of their work was defending the animals from raiders. And so they were ready to be useful when the time came. If you work, if you're someone who's going to be at work tomorrow, how do the skills you get in the workplace make you ready to help in a crisis? Here at this church, church has a history of people using their, their professional skills to serve the community, people with practical skills. My family's benefited massively from people with practical skills. I don't know a first thing about a boiler, but people with practical skills who are willing to give advice and time, people with medical skills who, who serve our community. It's already part of the culture of this church. How do my skills help the community in the time of crisis. I was, thinking about, um, I was thinking about driving. A lot of our young people, I did terribly. In Brazil, I passed the first time my driving test. I came to the UK, and I failed four times. Passed on the fifth go. Um, but thinking about driving, just around our mindset, is driving something that we 
gain the ability to do in order to be independent for our own selves? Or is it a skill that we acquire so that we can use it for the service of other people? Does that make sense? It's that mindset around all of our skills. What skills can I bring in a crisis? And I think it's really important to put across that there's nobody here this evening who can bring nothing in a crisis. I say that with absolute certainty. Whoever you are here this evening, there's definitely something you can bring. And I, that's because I believe strongly that prayer makes a real tangible difference in the world. And every single person here this evening can pray. I think I challenge you. After the, if you don't agree with me, come and talk to me after the service. I think prayer is so important. I think doing the Christian life without and not recognizing the importance of prayer. It would be like talking about the, world, the Second World War, the war effort, and saying, oh, the RAF didn't really contribute anything. I think it's that, it's that level of importance, perhaps more. So, Abraham... Sorry, there's the fourth point, skilled. Abraham saves the day, brings Lot back and all the captives and the possessions... And then a mysterious character appears in verse 18, this guy Melchizedek. Just out of interest, the, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And he's described as being the king of Salem. Um, Salem goes on probably to become Jerusalem. But the king of Salem literally means the king or the prince of peace. Does that sound familiar? And he brings him bread and wine. Does that ring any bells? And it was a bit of a wrestle when I was getting ready to prepare this passage. I was going to go down one of two routes. One was to talk about Melchizedek more, and the other was to talk about the crisis thing. And I kind of couldn't get the crisis thing out of my head. But Melchizedek's a really important and interesting and mysterious character. If you want to read more about him, Psalm 110. Read Psalm 110 with this chapter we've just read in the back of your mind. And it's amazing how close they are to each other. Read Psalm 110 if you want to find out about this guy Melchizedek. And then Hebrews chapter 5 to 7. They basically show how Melchizedek is a clear signpost to our king, to Jesus. It's so clear. And Abraham, if you see at the bottom there, Abraham gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything. It's the first example of what we call tithing in the Bible. Basically 10% of what he's gained, he gives to this guy Melchizedek. And then... The story ends. This king of Sodom says, you know, give us the people, but you can keep all the stuff. And Abraham refuses. He refuses to take any money for his service. He's volunteering. It's probably the first example of a volunteer in the Bible. He's volunteering, not profiteering. But in, uh, you see down the bottom there, he makes sure that the guys, you know, the three brothers and the men that have come with him, he makes sure that they get their share. So no one's left out of pocket. He doesn't profit financially from serving. So Abraham, number five, the last point, Abraham is giving and he's volunteering. And um, from when I was a little boy, uh, there were a few things that my mom and dad, my mom and dad did quite a lot of hammering things into us. I think I've said that before. They're lovely people, but they had a quite a sort of hammering parenting style. And there were, there were a few things that were hammered into us as children. Um, one of them was, when you grow up and you're earning money, that money and your ability to work have come from God. And so you give 10% of what you earn back to God as a way of thanking him. And in doing that, you'll be blessed. 
The other thing was, if you have skills um, that you can use to serve your local church, use those skills and don't expect anyone to thank you. Don't expect anyone to pay you. You're using them to serve your community as an act of worship to God. You're not expecting anything in return. And that's just good practice. Those were two things that were hammered into me as a boy. And in doing that, you'll be blessed. As you give back to God some of what he's given you, you'll be blessed in doing that. And it's true. And so with that, questions for myself are, is my giving in line with my income, or am I holding some of that back? And for, and for each one of us, that's something for us to address between us and God. Some, all of us are in different places with money. And does my service to the community look like that? Am I expecting anything in return when I serve? And I think what you see, if you look around you in this room, if you look at the people who were here this morning, we already see that this church has a strong heritage and history of people giving freely and serving freely and giving their skills without expecting anything in return. And when you get a group of hundreds of people doing that together, what you get is a community that in a crisis is able to respond in a way. If you think of Abraham, he couldn't have done much against that army, but with his guys with him, they'd routed them. This community is able to do far more in a crisis than I could ever do as an individual. So my giving, I see my giving as releasing people to be able to do stuff far beyond what I could do by myself. Does that make sense? So that's the five things. Being useful in a crisis. Number one, it was with a heart of courage and love. Number two, it was together with allies. Number three, Abraham was ready to act now, not next week. Number four, Abraham was using his skills. And number five, he was giving and volunteering. But just coming to the end now, there, for all of us, if we put all of that into practice, we'll get a lot done and we'll be useful in a crisis. But there are still two enemies that no amount of effort or skill or preparation could ever deal with, and that's true for all of us. The first one is the problem of sin in our own hearts. And the second one is the fact that all of us are going to die one day. And so what we do this evening, what we do every Sunday, is we come together as a community of people to our king, to the man who put himself, because he loved us, he put himself in harm's way, and he acted with skill when the time was right, and he's made us a way to have a new heart, to have a new relationship with God, to not be afraid of death. And so we come to Jesus, he is the king of righteousness, he's the prince of peace, and he blesses us, and we share bread and wine together sometimes. And Jesus calls us not just to enjoy being his family, to enjoy that peace, but he calls us to wage war with him. Not against people. He's very clear on that. We're not waging war with violence or against people. This is Ephesians chapter 6. This is what he calls us to do. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, 
and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be ready to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. I'll finish with this. Um, A few weeks ago, some of the young people went away for a a weekend away, and my brother-in-law, Sam, some of you know him, the guy with the red beard, he had prepared to speak, and in preparing to speak, he he was telling us he was feeling incredibly anxious, just huge amount of anxiety in preparing to speak. And we got to the weekend, and he did the talk on the first night, feeling very anxious. And I went and prayed with him, and I felt, I was studying this passage, and what I said to him was, if you imagine those nomadic herdsmen, Abraham's men, running through the night, chasing down that army, there would have been a degree of anxiety. We're going up against a battle-hardened army. We might fail. We might die. There'd be a degree of anxiety. But imagine how it was for the other army, the army that was at ease when those men came out of the darkness all around them. Can you imagine the fear of that? And so what I said to him was, Sam, you're feeling a degree of anxiety, but what is happening this weekend in the lives of those young people is doing massive damage to the forces of evil and darkness. The work that Jesus is doing in those young people's lives and the difference it's making. So I said, you might be feeling a degree of anxiety. I talked about this passage, but think of the anxiety that the evil one fears at the work that's being done in these young people's lives. And Jesus did do work in those young people's lives. So I said, you can take that anxiety and put it onto the evil one. It's not for you, it's for him. It's him that should be anxious. And so for all of us, as we look about us, we don't know what Mount Vesuvius is going to erupt this week in people's lives, what crisis is going to happen. But let's not be the kind of people who, when a crisis happens, say, oh, isn't that awful for them? Oh, dear. And don't really do anything. Let's be the kind of people who are prepared and useful when a crisis happens. 